The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I'd like to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Let me just say something before we get started this morning. I want to thank those of you watching live out there who support this ministry financially. Uh, you don't know what a blessing you are. We would not exist without you. Um, you know, we have a symbiotic relationship here because you people online are basically supporting this ministry so we can meet here because if you weren't doing that, we wouldn't be able to meet here. We wouldn't be able to pay the bills. And you people who meet here, you give me, I can watch your faces, I can get some feedback, I get excitement so I can preach. So without them, you wouldn't have anything. And without you, we wouldn't have anything. So thanks. I, I appreciate all of you. I appreciate your support. Um, appreciate your financial support. It's, I just am humbled by God that so many people support us. Um, thank you. All right. We're going to talk this morning about the already, but not yet. Sounds kind of like a contradiction, doesn't it? Last week in our study, Does Eschatology Matter? I said that salvation was historically tied to eschatology. I said that according to the Bible, no one goes to heaven prior to the second coming, according to Scripture. Now, most people don't believe that today, but that's what the Bible says. No one had eternal life prior to Christ's second coming. So if he hasn't come yet, people still don't have eternal life. Now, someone asked the question, well, what about John 6.47? Yeshua says, truly, truly, I say unto you, whoever believes has eternal life. The word has here is the Greek word echo. It's a present active indicative, which means that the degree of contingency is zero. It's reality rather than hypothetical. It means to possess. So if you believe, you have, at that moment, eternal life. So Yeshua is speaking this to Jews at around 80-30, and He says to those who believe that they have eternal life. But look what Yeshua says in Luke 18-28. He says, and Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. All right. Now, if you're paying attention, you got to say, wait a minute, which is it? All right. Yeshua tells them that whoever believes at that time has eternal life, but then Yeshua tells Peter that eternal life is a condition of the age to come. Now that sounds like a contradiction. So which is it? Do they have eternal life or are they waiting for it? Yes. Let's look at a couple more texts and see if we can clear this up. (laughs) Titus 3, 5 through 7. He says, he saved us. This is saved here is an aorist tense in the indicative mode which indicates past action. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Yeshua the Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, you notice what he's saying here? What about eternal life? What is it? He said it's a hope. It's a hope of eternal life. Now, let me ask you something, believers. Do you hope for things that you have? I hope not. (laughs) You like that little pun there? I mean, it's foolish to hope for what you have, because if you have it, why would you hope for it? You already have it. But he's telling them that they are hoping for eternal life. <clears throat> Look at Jude one twenty one. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Yeshua the Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, I think the NIV, hate to say it, makes this verse much clearer. It says this, Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Yeshua the Christ to bring you 
eternal life. Alright, so he says, waiting here, wait. This is the Greek verb, prosdekomai, which means to wait with great expectancy. It's used of future things in a sense of expecting, at the same time accepting. It's earnestly, in other words, we're waiting for what? To, for Him to bring eternal life. He says, the mercy of our Lord Yeshua. What He's talking about here is the second coming. That's the mercy of our Lord that's going to lead to eternal life. Mercy is usually used of Yahweh, and here it's used of Christ, who is Yahweh. It is Yahweh's mercy to eternal life. So these first century saints, they're waiting anxiously for eternal life, which means it's future to them. But it would come to them at the parousia of Christ. Now, people use these verses to argue against the inspiration of Scripture. I mean, they say, look, he says, you have it here. He says, over here, you're hoping for it. He says, you know, it's still future. They have an expectancy for it. So they, they, they want to say, you know, the Scripture is not expired. There's a lot of contradictions. And it does sound like a contradiction. So which is it? Did they have it or were they waiting for it? People see this as a contradiction because they do not understand the already but not yet of the New Testament. Now, I know this sounds, if it's already, then how can it be not yet? And if it's not yet, how can it be already? I mean, it sounds ridiculous, right? But let's, let's, let's talk about this for a second. <clears throat> the already but not yet refers to the concept of a pre-fulfillment of a future reality. It is used to speak of things that the first century believers had, the already, but yet still waited for the consummation of the not yet. Let's see if I can explain it this way. Let's say that you're 16 years old and a very rich relative dies and leaves you a large inheritance. But you can't touch it until you're 21. The inheritance is yours. It's already. You have it. It's your inheritance. But you can't spend any of it until you're 21, so it's not yet. The already but not yet tension underlies the whole New Testament. I mean, we see this all through the New Testament. We're going to look at that this morning. Now, let me just give you a word of caution here on the already but not yet. Uh, This theology is really popular with the charismatics and those who embrace the prosperity gospel. Costi Hinn, who is the nephew of Benny Hinn, stated in his book, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel, He says that prosperity gospel preachers often tell people at a healing service that they have been healed, but they'll realize it later. So they use the already, see, you're already healed, but it's not yet. And that's a total distortion of what this idea was meant to be. Costi Hinn points out that such teaching is a lie, and it is. It's not biblical truth. This is a distortion of the concept of already but not yet. We're talking theology in the New Testament. We're not talking, okay, yeah, God healed you, but you don't look like you're healed, but I'm a healer, so you know, I want you to be healed, but not yet. So go home and wait for it. That's not how Yeshua did healing, okay? So anyway, all right. So there, I just want you to know there's a, there's a distortion. You might hear, like I said, the charismatics use this already but not yet in a totally unbiblical way. All right, as we look at the New Testament, we see it's not just eternal life that the New Testament says they have, but they're waiting for. In Philippians 3.12, Paul says, Not that I have already attained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Yeshua has made me His own. So Paul's saying here, I don't have it yet. Well, what is it that he doesn't have yet? Well, the verb lambano, which is the word obtained there, is transitive, but the object is not expressed. Is it the resurrection that he mentioned in verse 11 that he doesn't have attained yet? Well, yes, I think the resurrection is included, but it's more than that. I think that what Paul is saying here is that justification has not been consummated. Paul is saying, not that I have already attained or have already been justified. See, at the time of Paul's writing, righteousness was still a hope. Now you might ask, well, didn't Paul and the New Testament saints already have the righteousness of God? Well, yeah, they did, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21. 
For our sake he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now Thayer says of the word become here, to come into existence, begin to be, receive being. So they had righteousness, but not in its consummated sense. The futuristic perspective of God's righteousness was clearly expressed by Paul when he says this in Galatians 5.5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, if righteousness was already a fulfilled or completed event, then Paul made a big mistake by making righteousness by faith a matter of hope. If righteousness was a present reality, why would Paul hope for it? So here we see the already but not yet of righteousness. Now we see the same thing in respect to salvation. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Now, the Greek word translated saved here is sozo, and it's in the perfect tense. This means something was done and completed in the past, and it continues to have results. They were saved. The Greek scholar Kenneth S. Wiest translates this verse this way. For by grace have you been saved in time past completely, through faith, with the result that your salvation persists through the present time. This salvation is not from you as a source. So this seems to be saying that their redemption is complete, yet later in the same chapter, Paul writes this. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, talking to Gentiles here, with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Yeshua Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. Now, do you know any buildings that grow? This is a spiritual building. This is God's dwelling place. And and they, they are growing into a dwelling, into a temple. He says, in the Lord, in Him also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. So the process in the first century was occurring. They're growing to become a dwelling place of God. They're being built. So God's house, and when, the God, when God's house is finished, He moves in His house, but you don't move in until it's finished. But here we, and what you have to understand, the clear blessing of the new covenant is that God would dwell with His people. But they're saying here, He hasn't moved in yet. The building is still being built. Look at Revelation. 21, 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was sea no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The house was finished. God moved in. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people, and God Himself will be their God. Now, the new Jerusalem is the new covenant. According to Galatians 4, 24-26, Galatians says these are two covenants. And then he says, but the Jerusalem above is free. So Paul is telling the Ephesian believers in the first century that they are being built for a dwelling place of God. It was a process that was taking place at that time, but it was still unfulfilled. Romans 5, 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, see, he says they have been justified. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope. Of salvation. So he says, You've been justified, but you're hoping for salvation. And again, you don't hope for what you have. See, salvation was not a completed event in the lives of the first century Christians. It was their hope. They looked forward to its soon arrival. Look at Romans 13, 11, and 12. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to awake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now. Than when we first believed. The night 
is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. So he equates their salvation with day, which was at hand, referring to the day of the Lord. The completion of redemptive history was at hand, and with it would come salvation. Peter also states that their salvation was not yet complete, 1 Peter 1.5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So salvation was ready to be revealed. When? In the last time. But we saw in Titus, they were saved. And this was to happen, he says, the first Peter he's talking about at the return of Christ. So they had, but were waiting for eternal life. They had, but were waiting for righteousness. They had, but were waiting for salvation and also redemption. Ephesians 1.7. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. This is the already. They had redemption, but they also waited for it. Romans 8.23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. The redemption here, apolutrosis, means deliverance at a cost or release by payment of a price. Now, embedded in the word redemption in the original language, apolutrosis is a little word lutron, which means ransom. In other words, the idea of redemption is deliverance or release by payment of a ransom. This is an important concept for us to get. The reason God can accept us, the reason He can save us, is because the ransom has been paid. And the concept is always in view when the word redemption is used, even in passages in the Tanakh. Even in these passages in the Tanakh, it's clear that redemption is based on some great expenditure of God. The price God paid is always in view. The New Testament terms for redemption always have in mind a price paid. So in redemption, somebody's release or deliverance is accomplished at the cost of a ransom payment. What's the ransom? What's the payment? Mark tells us in 1045, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom. The answer is that the life of the Son of Man is the ransom paid for redemption. He gave His life so there could be release and deliverance. Christ died for man's sins in AD 30. But Paul says in Romans 8.23, we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons of redemption of our body. Now Paul probably wrote Romans around AD 55-56. So let's say 25 years after Christ died, Paul said they're still waiting for the redemption of the body. They're still waiting eagerly. It was not yet. When Christ returned, He brought redemption. As long as the old covenant existed, the believers were not perfect and they did not have access to God. Look at Hebrews 9, 8-10. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open. That's the dwelling place of God. It's not open yet, as long as the first section still has standing. He says, which is symbolic for the present age, the age they lived in. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Under the Old Covenant, Believers were never made perfect. And because they were not perfect, they could not enter God's presence. When Christ returned, it was because all believers had been made like Him. So, they had, but were waiting for, eternal life. They had, but were waiting for, righteousness. They had, but were waiting for, salvation, redemption, and also, adoption. Look at Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So they had received the spirit of adoption. But look at Galatians 4, 5 through 7. To redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, you're an heir through God. Now look what he says in Romans 8, 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. So adoption was something that they eagerly waited for. It was not yet. But also something they were said to have had. So the New Testament teaches that they had, but were waiting for eternal life, righteousness, salvation, redemption, adoption, sanctification also. Look at 1 Corinthians 1-2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Yeshua, called to be saints together with all those who are in every place, call in the name of the Lord Yeshua, the Christ, both their Lord and ours. So believers were sanctified in Christ, but they also waited for the completion of their sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be blameless at the coming of our Lord Yeshua the Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will do it. So sanctification was to be completed at the return of Christ. Now David Briones, who is a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, he wrote an article on the already but not yet that expresses a view that I don't think is correct, but let's look at what he says here. This is a typical view. He says, for now, meaning now, you, me, now. For now, Christians live in the great theological tension. We already possess every spiritual blessing in Christ, but we do not experience the fullness of these blessings yet. Now, what he's saying here would be right if he was said during the first century and then went on, but not for now, okay? He says, in one sense, we already have, we already adopted, redeemed, sanctified, saved. In another These experiences are not yet fully ours. Underneath this theological and practical tension are two comings of Christ. In His first coming, He inaugurated the last days. That is true. In His second coming, He says He will, but I would say He has completed them. In the meantime, we live now in the overlap of the two ages. All right, this is a typical view of the already but not yet. Because most modern writers think it still applies to us today. Heiser continually tries to explain eschatology by using the already but not yet. But it's my understanding that the already but not yet does not apply to us. It has not been applicable since AD 70, when the new covenant was consummated. The already but not yet, listen, only applies to those who live between 30 and and 70 A.D. This period of time is known as a transition period. Charity, will you put me a full slide? This is, I think, what most people think happens. Okay, you got the Old Covenant, you got the New Covenant, Pentecost changed everything, right? Well, that's what most people think, but that's not really how it worked out. It actually more is looks like this, Okay. You got Pentecost, which began a 40-year period to AD 70. Now, this 40-year period's got a bunch of different names, okay? You could call it the transition period. You could call it the Christ event. We'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. It's called the last days. It's called this age, and it's called the second exodus. All those names are applicable to that 40-year period. It began at 30. It ended with the destruction During this time, the church was growing from infancy to maturity. The church had been born. You see how the green just starts a little bit of green there, and it's growing, it's expanding. The same thing with the blue. The blue is big, but it's disappearing as you go through the 40 years. A spiritual house was being built during this time for God to dwell in. This was a time of change. This was a time of growth. A lot of people say, well, it happened in the New Testament. It should happen now. Wrong. These were 40 very unusual years of transition. The old covenant was fading away. The new covenant was being consummated. 
All right, again, this is the already but not yet. The already but not yet, let me say this again, only applies to this period of time, this 40 years. All right, you can't take it beyond that because once you get beyond 80, 70, there's no more not yet. It's already. We have it all. The saints had it all. Now, the writer of Hebrews in AD 65 said that the old covenant was ready to vanish. You see the blue there? It's about to go, and it's not. There's no blue on the other side of AD 70. It's gone. It's totally gone. All right, Charity, you can put me back. Hebrews 8.13 says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, that'd be the old covenant, obsolete. Right? New covenant comes, the old one, we don't need the old one anymore. And what is becoming obsolete... And growing old is ready to vanish. This is, like I said, around AD 65. The old covenant is, it's obsolete. It's growing old. It's just about to go away. The old covenant was characterized by promise, a shadow, prophecy. The new covenant may be characterized as fulfillment, as reality, as realization. Notice that the text says, is becoming obsolete and ready to vanish away. That, that is not speaking to us. Okay, this is speaking to the first century saints. It was becoming old, it was ready to vanish, and it vanished in AD 70. As of 65 AD, it had not become obsolete yet. And that's why it's so important when you're reading your Bible, you've got to understand audience relevance. People say, yeah, the old covenant, it's growing old. Uh, it's gone, okay, it's done, died. It, grow old, it was growing old in the first century. That's when this was written. Very important to understand when something was written. At the end of the transition period, the judgment, the resurrection, and the second coming all took place. Now, another name for this transition period could be called the Christ event. All right, we think of the idea, well, Christ came, and okay, that's it, and he's going to come again. Well, his coming and his second coming is an event, and there's 40 years in between them, but it's one event. And I want, you, I want to try to show you that. Let's look at uh, in Acts 2.1, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, I'm sure you're all aware of what happened to Pentecost. This is the birth of the church, okay? The Jews are all gathered together for Pentecost. The church is born. How does Peter interpret what happened at Pentecost? Well, Peter says this. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In other words, what's happening now is something Joel told us was going to happen, all right? Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says Pentecost is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Then he quotes Joel 2.28-32. So let's look at that quotation. He says, and in the last days it shall be. So they were in the last days because this was happening. That God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, let me put this together here. And please notice, this is one prophecy of one event that encompasses the pouring out of the Spirit. He says, I will pour out my Spirit. And then he says, blood and fire and vapor and smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness. Is that happening at Pentecost? No, that's Holocaust. That's AD 70. So it's one event. All right, the Spirit's being poured out and then judgment comes. This is the Christ event. It encompasses the cross, Pentecost, resurrection, judgment, the parousia. Please notice that Joel's prophecy covers from Pentecost to the day of the Lord. It covers a 40-year period equal to a generation. We see the same idea of an event that takes place over a period of time in Matthew 3. And talking about John the Baptist, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent! The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what I want you to see is that John's message also covered a 40-year period. John announced in verse 2 that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, meaning it's very near. That's a reference to Pentecost. 
But John's message also involved judgment. Look what he says in verse 10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and it's thrown into the fire. Now, in order for the kingdom to be consummated, which would happen 40 years later, there must be a time of judgment first. The axe is there at the root, ready to cut down the tree that is not bearing fruit. So John places an emphasis on fire again in verse 11 and 12. In those verses, there's a reference to the coming destruction. Now, the Jews of John's day knew these prophecies of the Hebrew Scriptures. So they understood that before the kingdom could be consummated, God's judgment had to fall on unbelievers who would be rooted out of the kingdom as the Messiah established His rule and His reign. Now, look at Matthew 3.11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, is that talking about Pentecost? Yes. Is it only talking about Pentecost? No. The Holy Spirit is Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. Where's the fire? Where's the fire come? That's the judgment of Jerusalem in AD 70. So you're being baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. AD 30 began the Christ event, but it was not completed until 40 years later at 70 AD. One event. So this 40-year period can be called the Christ event. The transition period is probably the most familiar term for it because it was a time of transition. But we could also call this period, this 40-year period, the last days. It's the last days of the old covenant Israel. All right? Those last days began around the birth of Christ. You could put it back that far if you want. And it ended in AD 70 when the Jewish temple was destroyed. This time period could also be called this age. Because that's what Scripture calls it. This age. They weren't in the age to come yet. We now live in what the Bible calls the age to come. Because we're on the other side of AD 70. Which is the new covenant age. But the 40 year period from Pentecost to Holocaust was a time of transitioning from the old covenant to the new covenant. The new covenant had been inaugurated, but not consummated. And only in this time period do we see the already, but not yet. Only there. During the Christ event, the transition period, the last days, the this age, they lived in hope of what they had been promised. Notice what the transition saints hoped for. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait For a hope that we have, and that's righteousness. Now, if they had righteousness, again, you don't hope for what you have. Do you understand? You get that, right? Anybody hope for something you already got? That's what you call malignant dumb, okay? Because if you got it, there's no point in hoping for it. Let me tell you a story. When I was a teenager, I would go to the Harley store and look at this bike that I wanted and drool over it and sit on it and started saving my money. And I, oh man, I dreamed about that bike. My life was going to be so fantastic once I bought that bike. I mean, it was just going to be exciting beyond measure. And I kept saving and saving and kept going to the Harley store. Finally, I paid for that bike. I bought it. I brought it home. And I was like, dang, my life is not, <laughs> it's not so great anymore. You know, it didn't, do, it didn't fulfill all my wildest dreams. Let me just say that. But I didn't hope for it anymore. I had it right outside. I could just go out and jump on it, ride it anytime I want, all right? So you just don't hope. But, man, I was hoping like crazy during my transition period. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 5.8 says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. They're hoping for something. They already had it, but they're still hoping for it. Titus 1.2, in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised. So they know they're going to get it, but they're still hoping for it. Titus 3.7, So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Titus 2.13, Waiting for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Christ. The return of Christ was the blessed hope because all that they hoped for would be fulfilled in His presence. 
Therefore, he says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua the Christ. The Christ event, the transition period, the last days, the this age, the age of hope, the second exodus, they hope for what they didn't see. They hope for the completion of their redemption. Romans 8, 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. We already got that, right? I have it. I don't hope for it. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You don't hope for what you had. So the transition saints during that period, they lived in hope. Now, there are some preterists today who think that everything was completed at the death of Christ, eighty thirty. That was it. It ended it all. I don't know how they deal with all these texts. But that's what they say. They don't see any transition period. They don't see any already but not yet. And I don't think that's a biblical position at all. Let me give you a couple more things that show that until A.D. 70, redemption was not completed, but is what the saints had in the transition period was a down payment of the perfection to come. This text that was read this morning, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him, speaking of Christ, you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What's this talking about? When a believer, when a person believed the good news of salvation, at that moment they were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now the Greek word sphlagizo here, translated sealed, means to stamp with a signet or private mark. It's for security or preservation. This is being marked out. This belongs to me. Peter O'Brien notes this. In speaking of the Holy Spirit as a seal, the notions of ownership and protection are in view. Cattle and even slaves were branded with a seal by their masters to indicate to whom they belong. I think we're somewhat understanding people brand cattle. That's mine. Put my mark on it. that, That thing belongs to me. Well, the sealing of God secured these believers. They were safe. So Yahweh is marking out those who are His with the Holy Spirit. Now in Ezekiel 9, 4-6, through we see that Yahweh set a sign or a mark on those who were sick about what they were seeing, the sin that was going on in their nation. Look at this, uh, Ezekiel 9, 4-6. And Yahweh said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, And put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So you you go through the city and just put a mark on their foreheads if they just hate what they see happening, the sin that's going on there. And to the others, he said, in my hearing, pass through. So they go through first, they put a mark. Then here comes the second group coming through. Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare you shall show no pity. So the second group comes through is looking for the mark. If you don't have the mark, you're dead. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women. But touch no one on whom the mark is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. So the Hebrew word translated mark here is tav. Tav is the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Here's kind of the, how it grew. Originally, Tav, or now Tav looks like this. That's the modern letter. But originally, it looked like this. Does that look like anything to you? Looks like a cross, doesn't it? See, the Tav was two sticks that were crossed, and they made the shape of a cross. So everybody who had this cross on their forehead lived. That's interesting, isn't it? Strange coincidence there. You know, but if they had the mark, they were sealed. So we see from the mark, which was a sign of security or preservation, that salvation is not like a transaction at Walmart, okay, where later on you can return it, you, you don't want it anymore, all right? When you put your faith in Christ, when you trust Him, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit and you are marked out by Yahweh. Now he says, the Holy Spirit 
Who is the guarantee? The word guarantee here is from the Greek word arabon. Remember that word, okay? Arabon, guarantee. It's translated as pledge or down payment in other translations. Strong says this word is of Hebrew origin. Okay, remember that. Hebrew origin, arabon, Hebrew origin. It's a pledge, he says. That is part of the purchase money or property given in advance as security for the rest. Earnest. Now, the Hebrew word for pledge is eravon. All right? So you got eravon and eravon. Eravon is Hebrew. Eravon, I mean Greek. Eravon is Hebrew. And this word eravon is used in Genesis 38, 17. He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, everybody know the context here? Huh? So if you know the context, then you're like, okay, it makes perfect sense. If you don't know the context, then you've got to go back and figure out what's going on here. Well, here's the context. Tamar had disguised herself as a harlot, okay, because her father-in-law had not been right with her, so she kind of tricks him. She dressed like a harlot. And Judah, her father-in-law, he sees her, and he wanted to have sex with her. So what's going on? They're negotiating a price. And she says, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he says, I'll send you a goat. Sure you will. I don't know you. You know, I mean, why would you? Sure, I'll send it over later. He didn't have a goat with him. They didn't carry goats in your wallet back then, okay? So she wanted a pledge. What can you give me as a pledge until you give me the goat? I need some security. I need some payment in advance. So the word pledge might be better translated as down payment or earnest money. A pledge is something valuable that you give as temporary collateral until you complete the agreement. We see the same word used in Job. Job said, lay down a pledge for me with you. Who is there who will put up security for me? Now what we see here in Job is called the Hebrew parallelism, which means that pledge and security mean the same thing. They're saying the same thing. So a pledge is something given to guarantee the rest. You follow me? So the Holy Spirit was given to the first century saints, believers, guaranteeing their future redemption. Paul also uses this word in 2 Corinthians 1.22. And who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So Paul uses the word seal and guarantee, indicating that Yahweh marked them for security or preservation and gave a deposit of the Spirit. What the saints had in the transition period was a down payment, a pledge of the perfection that was to come. The Holy Spirit guaranteed they would get the completion of what had been promised. 2 Corinthians 5.5 says... He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. What's the purpose of a guarantee? Well, in the context, it was a guarantee that they would receive, here in 2 Corinthians, their new home. It's a building made from God, a house not made with hands. So they got the Spirit as a guarantee, you're going to be the dwelling place of God. So we could say that the Spirit was given these transition saints as a pledge, as a guarantee that they would in the very near future receive the adoption, the redemption of their body, the salvation, the eternal life, everything that was promised them. That Holy Spirit marked them out as you're going to receive what God has promised. Ephesians 4.30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. They're sealed by the Holy Spirit until the future to them, day of redemption. It was not yet, but they were sealed for it. Therefore, Paul teaches that once a person becomes a Christian, they're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's impossible for them to become a non-Christian. After God causes a person to have faith in Christ, you don't lose that, okay? Look at John 10, 28 and 29. I give them eternal life, the already. They didn't have it yet. And they will never perish. Why won't they perish if it's not yet? Because they have a guarantee that they are going to get it. Nothing's going to change that. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, if you know who's talking here, 
You get that, right? This is Yahweh. This is God in the flesh saying, no one will take them out of my hand. And if you want to see how powerful this God is, Yahweh, go back to Exodus and read about the Exodus out of Israel. And watch how every plague came against one of those Egyptian gods. And God says, I just destroy the gods of Israel. And they were begging them to leave. Their gods looked like nothing when they were done. So this God says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So God's got us. Yeshua's got us in his hand, and nothing is going to change that ever because there's nobody greater than God. He's omnipotent. The life of God is eternal. It can never be lost. Believers will never perish. Ephesians 1.14 Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? So, oh, we got an inheritance. But we haven't possessed it yet. In verse 11, Paul says, We have obtained an inheritance. And here he says, Who's the guarantee of our inheritance? Now, both Jews and Gentiles are by the mediation of Christ in union with Him. He's joining the two together. Brought to be partakers of the benefits of the plan of mercy which God had purposed in Himself, which He had now revealed for the salvation of man. He says, until we acquire the possession of it. Paul says here, speaking to first century saints, not to you, not to me. He says, we have the promise from God, that same God who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we will be redeemed. So speaking of fulfillment of that redemption, the culmination culmination will happen when God brings forth the new heavens and the new earth, which is the consummation of the new covenant. The promise was certain, but to them it was still future. That's why this understanding the transition period, the Christ event, second next, whatever you want to call it, is foundational, fundamental to interpreting the New Testament. You're going to be way off because you're going to read these things and you say, I can't wait till we get our inheritance. You better start enjoying what you already have, okay? Instead of waiting for something that's already there. It's already yours. Now, sadly, and I say sadly, most today still think the promise is future. They're still Because they're still waiting for the second coming, Therefore, they're still waiting for eternal life. They're still waiting for salvation. They're still waiting for adoption. It's all future to them if, if the Lord has not come. John MacArthur writes this. Now look, we have not yet totally been redeemed. We've been redeemed spiritually, but we haven't been redeemed physically with a body redeemed a la Romans 8. Now, he doesn't know what time it is. So to MacArthur, we're still in the already but not yet. And let me tell you, that, if you're not a preterist, that's what they hold to. We're still. This already been not yet. It's been 2,000 years, and it's still not yet. Okay? So the Christ event is a long, long, long event to them. All right? And the Holy Spirit was given as an engagement ring, a down payment. This is the longest engagement there has ever been. Okay? I'm a little weary of it. You know, might start looking around for somebody else. You know, it's crazy. But he doesn't see, he doesn't know what time it is because he still thinks he's living in the old covenant age. He still thinks he's living in this age to the New Testament writers. Believers, we are no longer living in the transition period. Charity, will you take me back to the full slide? Already but not yet. Only, only during this 40-year period, people. Very important that you understand that. We are here. Okay, we're in the New Covenant. You see any blue around there? No, because it's totally consummated. Past A.D. 70, the Old Covenant is completely gone. Because at A.D. 70, God judged Israel. He destroyed the temple. He destroyed Jerusalem. That was it. End. Finale. Done. I don't know how this came about, but this week, I was at my neighbor's, and she said, well, you believe the same thing about Israel I do. And I was like, uh, no, I don't. I don't know what you believe, but I guarantee I don't believe it. I, and I said, I think Israel are a bunch of Christ-rejecting God-haters. And she was like, what? You know, and I started sharing with her. She goes, what do you do with the whole Old Covenant? I said, in the Old Covenant, the promises were conditional. Read Deuteronomy 28, blessings and cursings. And God promised them, if you don't obey me, I will judge you. 
And he did that. He brought the Deuteronomy 28 covenantal cursings down. And I started quoting scripture. And I'm going off. And she goes, that's false doctrine. And I said, okay, I'm done. And that was the end of it. But that's where most people are, people. They're, they're, Israel is still God's people. They don't understand what happened in 87. Most people don't even know about AD 70. They don't know there was such a year, okay? They don't know the temple was destroyed. They don't know the sacrifices were ended. They don't know that God said, I'm done with you. And listen, in Matthew 22, he told them this. He's going to send in. He's going to destroy their city. He's going to burn it down. All through the Bible, he told them this. Like I said, and those promises were conditional in the Old Covenant. Those land promises, they, they never obeyed the Lord. So we're not living today, believers, in the age of hope. You got that? We're living in the age of have. Okay? The righteousness of Christ is ours right now. Salvation is ours. Eternal life is ours. Immortality is ours. Believers, we have it all. We are waiting for nothing. The only thing that's ever going to change in our life is when we physically die, we'll leave this realm and move into the eternal realm. But we're as complete as we're going to get because we have right now the righteousness of Christ. We dwell and move in Him. So, again, I can't stress how important it is to understand this transition period and all that happened there. All right, people say, well, the miracles happened in the New Testament. They should happen now. Well, you got to understand they already, but not yet. Okay, the miracles were going on there because there was a time of transition. But guess what? They ended. And, you know, I haven't gotten anybody to demonstrate to me the miracles they say are still around today. So, uh, again, I'm not saying God doesn't do miracles. Okay, God can do anything he wants to do. He's God. I'm saying the gift of these supernatural miracles had ended because it was for that time period to demonstrate the changing of the covenants. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace to us, Lord. Thank you for all you have provided us in Christ. Lord, I thank you for the joy of understanding the transition period. Because when I read these promises of things that they have in the future, I don't look forward to them with hope. I realize they're mine. I can joy in them right now. Lord, thank you for a completed, full, and secure salvation that is mine. I pray that the understanding of this would drive us, Lord, to be image bearers for you, that we would show the world who you are by how we live. Thank you for your grace to us, Lord. Amen.